Welcome to the Connect Church Podcast. Our mission at Connect Church is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information on who we are and how we're doing just that, visit myconnectchurch.cc. Now, let's jump into this week's message from Pastor Blaine. Isaiah 42. We'll be there in just a few minutes. We know that Jesus did not come to fulfill some divine public relations strategy. We know that Jesus did not come as some divine experiment firsthand to see firsthand why humans behave the way they do. If we were to ask today, why did Jesus come? Some would say to bear our sins. Others would say to forgive us of our sins. Still yet others might say in doing so, Jesus came so we could have a a shepherd, and Jesus could identify and shepherd his flock. And still others would say, not just simply that, but that Jesus would come to bail us out of all of our trouble and otherwise make us righteous. And Jesus did accomplish these things. He, He did come, and he did bear our sin, and he did die on the cross and forgive our sins, and he did resurrect and promise us eternal life, and he is coming again. He does declare us righteous as we place our faith And hope in Him. But I want you to listen to me very, very clearly this morning. This message is very important for us to listen to every part of it. Okay? Not that every message isn't. But while Jesus did accomplish these things, these things fall far short of the motivation of Christ. If we focus on our faith that Jesus came to bear our sins, forgive our sins, offer us hope in this life and even in the next, what slowly begins to happen generation after generation when we make the gospel about the benefits, we turn ourselves into the primary character of our own stories. In fact, we turn our own, our own lives into the subject of redemption. Now, Jesus does come to redeem us, but that wasn't His motivation. He didn't come to redeem us. He came for a higher purpose. And that's what we're going to talk about. Because if we were left to draw our conclusions, these actions would make us think that we are the center of God's plan. And I'm here to remind us this morning that we are not at the center of God's plan. And that's hard for us because... By nature, we are incredibly selfish. In our human nature, we only think about ourselves. But that's not the way of the gospel. As if we are the chief end. Now, society already thinks that. In fact, society wants that. And when we do think about ourselves that way, we have an overinflated view of ourselves and we project our view of ourselves upon God. And what that does is it humanizes God to a God we can reach. We've talked about this for the last couple of weeks. But we begin to move to move God down and humanize Him and we lower Him. And what we also do is we take all the things that are said about us and we begin to elevate ourselves far beyond what is reasonable, and we balance ourselves and God and society. You know, we, we, can, we can do that a little bit in faith uh, because we truly know the heart of it, but when I'm, I'm afraid that a world that is without Christ have a difficult time with Christianity because of that. 
overinflated egos of Christians, and a lower view of holiness of God. The question is then, what ultimately, what ultimate end did God have in mind when He sent His Son to bear our sins, forgive our sins, offer us hope? Jonathan Edwards said this, It is manifest from Scripture that God's glory is the last end of the work of redemption by Jesus Christ. In other words, the ultimate end of sending His Son to earth was to glorify Himself. I think it's paramount that we learn this because this is the difference between identifying with a belief system and identifying with a people group. I am a Christian. We have Christianity in common and calling ourselves Christian. I am Christian. I live the life, the mind of Christ. So this morning I want us to take just a moment and I want to talk about why you think about God glorifying Himself. I don't want to be very careful here. I don't want to, mis- I don't want to be misunderstood, but we're going to, we're going to walk into a, a great apologetic. And it's super rich and it's super deep. So, so, so stay, stay with me. I think that it will help us. You think about God glorifying Himself. I'm, I'm afraid. I hear this often, not necessarily in our congregation and among us, but I hear this a lot when people begin to struggle with faith. When we begin to struggle with frustrations and pain and, and misunderstandings, I hear, I hear people say God, things like God is so arrogant. You know, everything is about Him. He created us. I didn't ask to be made. God made us and then He demands us to be like Him and to think like Him and to worship Him and adore Him. And really, God seems to be some sort of a narcissist where He is the center of everything and, and, and commands us. And if you don't like me, if you don't love me, if you don't sacrifice your life for me, I'm going to condemn you to be apart from me for all eternity. That kind of rubs our carnal nature the wrong way because in the flesh, we kind of like to be God. So I want to take a moment and I want us to talk about why God commanding and demanding worship from us is not selfish. For humans to seek his or her own glory or expect others to, we call this, and I hear it all the time now, and I'm not demeaning the the term, but anytime we have a problem with somebody in a relationship, we just say, well, they're so narcissistic. And so God actually fits that mold too. God thinks about himself all the time. And he commands everybody else to. A lot of the world would say that's a pretty narcissistic God. That God's not a God of love, a God of giving. That's a God that's consumed with himself. What I want to do for a moment is to say, when we begin to think those thoughts, God gives us the ability to think again. Our human egos are constantly on display. And if we're honest, we know that we seek our own glory as a natural reflex, right? I mean, let's just be honest for a moment. When something happens, somebody says something, does something, or you feel something, you immediately say to yourself, how does this affect me? Well, when you have the Holy Spirit living on the inside of you, there is a freedom in Christ whereby we may think again. Let me give you a word as an illustration. Uh, the word fear is a very commonly used word in Scripture. It's used 365 times. 
Fear not. Do not be afraid. Those sorts of things. Do you know that every time that you tell somebody not to be afraid, it's because they're already afraid? Do you hear how ridiculous that is? If you walk into a room and somebody jumps out and they go, oh, you, goodness, you scared me. And they say, oh, don't be afraid. Well, it's a little late for that. Should have put a sign on the door. (laughs) And children of Israel are getting ready to walk across the Red Sea and they are terrified and Moses, God says to Moses, Moses, tell them not to be afraid. Jesus is walking on the water and they're terrified. And Jesus says, don't be afraid, right? When you have the Spirit of God working in your life, He gives you the freedom to think again. So I have thoughts. My first thought is always self. How many of you as Christians have ever said to yourself or thought to yourself, if I were really a Christian, I wish that I could get to the point where a holy thought is my first thought. Anybody ever thought that? Maybe I'm not a Christian because Christians shouldn't think that as their first thought. How am I not getting any better? Would you be honest enough just to say, that's, that's me? Okay, that's me too. Uh, you're in good company. Uh, not that I make the good company, but we're all, we're all in this together. How's that? We're all in this together. So I believe that Scripture teaches us that our first thought in this life will always be human nature. It'll be our reflex. But when the Spirit of God is at work in our life, He gives us the freedom to think again. So here's what my first thought is, but I'm taking that thought captive unto Christ, and now I can think again. But before I was a Christian, I couldn't think again. I was a slave to my thoughts. I was a slave to my ambitions, to my desires. I couldn't, I couldn't think again. And when people would tell me to make a better choice, I, I couldn't, I can't. This is what Paul talks about, being we're slaves Because I don't have anything else to obey. I'm obeying my flesh because my flesh is the only input. But as a Christian, now with the Spirit of Christ living in me, the Holy Spirit living inside of me, I can take that thought, I can pass it through the life of Christ, and I can think again. It's a very, very powerful, liberating idea. So now that I am free in Christ, that doesn't mean I am free to do whatever I want. It means that I am free to... Think again, what is the second thought? The second thought is the same motivation that it was when Jesus came to the earth. And that was to give glory to God. Where is there glory for God in this? In this moment, in this situation, in this thought, is there glory for God? And that's the choice we make is for the glory of God, not for selfishness. So when we turn salvation into something that feeds the carnal flesh, get right with God and your fears will go away. Get right with God and you'll be free of your guilt. Get right with God and all your sins are are clear. Get right with God and you'll go to heaven one day. That makes you, your whole Christianity is based upon how you benefit and you become a bucket where God's responsibility is to keep your bucket full. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is not simply found in the cross and the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus Christ. The gospel is found in the glory of God. And there is no better picture of the glory of God than the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That's where we see it manifest the best, the clearest, the most perfect I'm not doing anything to remove the cross from the gospel. I'm simply saying that God has called us to be conduits, not buckets. So that the love of God flows through us, not just into us, and we become better people. His life flowing through us is the ultimate goal. 
of salvation. And everything short of that is short of the goal. It cheapens the cross. It cheapens the resurrection. If you make the cross and the resurrection about you, you've cheapened it. It's not about you. Ask Jesus. Jesus will tell you what it was about. That the name of the Father would be glorified. That I may glorify your name, O Lord. Over and over we find Jesus' motivation was not you. You were a byproduct of His obedience. When you begin to think that, then all of a sudden we have ministry in us, but through us, not just for us. We move from being the central character to the storyteller. The idea that God is some selfish egomaniac. The only way to think differently from that is the gift of revelation. God gives us a frame of reference, which also I think you could think of Him and, and, and the only way that we can know that frame of reference, that revelation, a deeper revelation, is through the Word of God. I think that's one of the reasons why Satan attacks the Word of God so destructively. Just like He did it from the very beginning. Has God not said, and He twisted the words of God. Jesus is in the, in the wilderness being tempted. He's attacking the Word of God. Undermining the Word of God. And you go to just about any church that calls himself a Christian today, and the attack is on the Word of God. God's Word's not literal. Oh, that's a book. You know, we're Christians, but we don't really live by the Word anymore. We don't take the Bible literally anymore. It's, the Word of God is always going to be attacked because that's where we get the revelation of the glory of God. When we lose it, we lose a... Can you think about climbing a ladder to a place you need to go and rungs being removed? Well, I want you to think about having to do that with the Word of God. You cannot get to the Father apart from the revelation of the Word of God. It's part of the plan. Listen to this. This is in Ezekiel chapter 36. And I'm going to start going pretty quick because I want to get through this this morning. This is God speaking to the, the, uh, his, his people, uh, Israel. And He says this in uh, Ezekiel 36. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, that is the people of Israel... Thus says the Lord God. Now, they are in a really, really bad way right here. And they would call themselves God's people. They are the seed or the sons of Abraham. And if you were to say to them, are you a follower of God? They would say, yes. Yes, we are followers of God. After all, look at who our parents were. Listen to all of our stories. Listen to us sing our songs. Of course we are the people of God. But they were not obedient so listen to what the Lord said. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but it is for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I want you to take the old people of God, the uh, Israelites in the Old Testament, in Ezekiel, and lay that right over top of salvation. 
He would say the same thing to us today. It is not for you that I vindicate. It is is for my name and for my glory that I do that. And as a testament of my goodness, I'm going to redeem you. But not because of you. You're not worthy. But then there's an amazing things that happen. God then changes the hearts of His people to reflect His heart and His nature. That's exactly what we have experienced in salvation. But when we think in some twisted, perverted way that, well, I'm just worth it. We say things like, if I was the only one ever born, God would still send His Son Jesus for me. And by the way, that's very true. But I want you to see how that elevates our stature, and we love that elevated stature. God's saving acts, Old Testament, New Testament, even today, are for the sake of His name, His reputation, His glory. There's no higher thought than that for us. It wasn't for His people, it was for His name. And that's also true today. Think about Psalm 19. The heavens declare what? The glory of God. Everything that God has created is created to give Him glory. That glory has been diminished because of sin. God must deal with sin For His name's sake, not for ours. He uses us as a byproduct of that. Does this make God a megalomaniac? Well, our starting point for answering this question is His perfection. As the only perfect being ever, all that God does, everything that flows out of Him is perfect. It can't be less. He perfectly seeks to display that perfection. He's even jealous for His own glory. I want you to think about the word holy. The word holy in both Hebrew and in Greek, it means, at the core as a definition, without missing parts. So to think that God is holy just simply means there are no missing parts in Him. He is complete and perfect all by Himself. And so when we think about the holiness of God, everything that God thinks, does, acts, everything is wrapped up in His holiness. It is His primary attribute. Everything about God flows through the filter of His holiness. His perfection. And so then everything that God does is perfect. When we say, well, the Bible says God is jealous, that's true. Through His holiness, it's perfect. His jealousy isn't missing parts like ours is. Or even love. We equate God's love with our love. I can't fathom unconditional love. We don't have it within us. But God's love is perfect because His love flows through His holiness. Even His anger. He tells us we can be angry and not sin. And God gets angry, but without sin, because His anger flows through His holiness. Well, I've got lots of missing parts. So when I get jealous, or I love, or I get angry, or I whatever, boy, mine isn't holy. Because as a base, I'm not holy. But God is. John Calvin said this, and I think it's an incredible statement. God is called jealous because He permits no rivalry that would detract from His own glory. Now think about that for a moment. When we say that God is selfish, or God is a narcissist, or God is uh, egotistical, or God is... 
arrogant to think that he, he would demand us to worship Him. To say that God isn't perfect. God isn't holy. But if God is holy, it would make sense because there, are, there is no higher thought than perfection. This is why over and over and over in Scripture, God is continually saying with the very first commandment, have no other gods before me. Right? And the second one, well, you go through all of them. Even the don't take the Lord's name in vain because it's holy. And by the way, keep holy days because I'm holy. Multiple times in the New Testament, be holy for I'm holy. Holiness is a big deal to God because it is His reputation. It is His character. It is His nature. Say, Pastor, you seem to be angry about something we already know about. I'm not angry. I'm passionate because I'm afraid the church is just about to forget this. Every alternative to God is false. For God to demand anything other than worship is not selfish. To not demand it would be selfish because He would allow us to seek something other than perfection. Can you imagine the hatred that it would take for God to know who He is and not expect us to follow after Him and worship Him? What kind of hatred would that be to say, well, I'll let you decide. There's nothing to decide. Everything else is false. And we turn to everything else. We turn to substances. We turn to materialism. We turn to money. We learn to relationships. We turn to reputation. We turn to power or influence. We turn to all sorts of things. But every other thing, listen to me closely, Every other thing are lies and thieves and destroyers. You may not, it may not seem that way from the beginning because your first thought's in the flesh. Your first thought says, oh, that's pretty. Oh, that offers hope. But everything that gives birth out of selfishness and the nature, selfishness always leads to sin. Sin always leads to death. Death always leads to hell. Hell always leads to the lake of fire for all eternity. Period. If it gives birth out of selfishness, and in our flesh, we are slaves to that way of thinking. But the best two words in all of Scripture, but God, stood in our way. And in His perfection, He says to us, I know a better way. I know a way. When Jesus stepped on the scene, what does He say? I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man can come to the Father except this way, by me. So God's jealousy is a wonderful gift for us. He's not like us. In fact, He's not like anything else. For Him to allow such a thought would rob Him from being good. God can rest in nothing other than himself. He cannot be satisfied with anything other than himself. And he cannot allow, he cannot permit any option other than himself. And that may seem arrogant, but it's for our good. It's not arrogant if he's true and faithful.
He has no alternative but to seek his own honor. I think of Hebrews uh, chapter 6, verse 13, and he says, uh, when God made a promise to Abraham, uh, this is in uh, Hebrews 6, 13, he said when he made a promise to Abraham, he says, when you go to court, and they, or trial or whatever, and they say, put your hand on the Bible if they still do that, and uh, swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help you Blaine, right? Yeah. No, that doesn't work in court because they'll know that out of Blaine doesn't come perfection. Uh, so it would be silly for me to swear by my name because I might be a liar, a thief, or a destroyer. So, but when God gives a testimony, there is no higher idea than the name of God. So when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. You think about it. He's looking at Abraham saying, Abraham, as a, as a guarantee that I'll keep this promise, I swear by... Well, there is nothing higher than me. So I swear by me. I want to make a slight gear shift here. The most important corrective to this misunderstanding is to realize that God's glory isn't so far removed We'd say, but that still makes God, that's still kind of a not a right answer. God's, God's glory is so far removed from us. I mean, God's perfect. Yeah, I get that. And I'm not. I get that. But that, boy, there's quite a gap between us. The gap is the whole point. When we can recognize the gap that selfishness has caused, that's when we can say, God's glory is so much different than mine. How can we, how can we bridge the gap? God's glory is generous and self-giving. That's what begins to change everything. His glory is His own joy. And the display of His glory brings His creatures true joy. Everything in creation can have joy because of His presence. His glory. His glory produces two things. His glory produces joy. And His glory produces peace. These are the two things that we are most desperate of in this world. Say, what about forgiveness? No, those are means to peace and joy. What about a restored relationship with God? No, those are means to peace and to joy. I can't have peace and joy apart from those things. But if I could get peace and joy a dozen different ways, we would choose a dozen different ways. But there is only one place for our soul's peace and joy. It cannot be had anywhere else. When your selfishness causes, you, causes the emptiness of thought and you recognize how far you are from God's glory, and sometimes we're even Christians when we realize that, you realize how far you are from peace and joy. and I, You can evaluate your own life. You begin to take steps. That first step may even be creation. We see the glory of God in it. We see order, we see symmetry, we see love, we see perfection, we see life. We see cycles. Take a step toward that. And as I recognize who God is in nature, I begin to recognize who God is in His people. Now this is where we really throw people off track because 
I see a lot of people who are engaged at God in their spirit level or in their heart level or in their mind level, and they get involved with the local church, and they get so deeply wounded, they don't see God there. They saw Him in nature. They saw Him in their emptiness. They don't see Him at church because many Christians don't see this. They live their life for themselves instead of for His glory. And they hurt people. We hurt people. But for those who are lucky enough to know that one Christian or two Christians that people can know and say, you know what, every other Christian has failed me, but I can't explain the transformation that happened in this person. This person is beyond explanation. I see something different in them. We take a step toward people. Then we take a step toward, well, what caused the transformation is people? God's Word. When we find God's Word, we find God's truth. When we find God's truth, we find salvation. We find salvation, we have the Spirit of God living in us. Then when I have the Spirit of God living in us, now I can think again. And when I begin to think again, I can actually sit in the presence of Jesus Himself. That was before I was unable to do that. But now that I am the righteousness of Christ, I can sit in the room with the righteousness of Christ. And now that I'm sitting with Jesus and having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, He gives me direct access into the throne room by which I can experience the full glory of God. Now in part, but for eternity in full. Step by step by step, He's drawing us to His glory. And every step necessary for the next step. And what do we have in glory? Peace and joy. When we are in the presence of the glory of God, we will experience peace and joy. But almost immediately, the cares of the world begin to pull us away. The distractions of our calendar and of our wallets and of our relationships begin to draw us away from the presence of God. And we tell God, I'll be back in a few moments. I've got to go deal with this thing. And it begins to be fewer and fewer and fewer. And life begins to be very chaotic and we begin to lose peace and joy. It's interesting to me that, especially in the New Testament, when Paul says, you know, that the church is acting like mere mortals. <laughs> You're acting like a man in the flesh. And it's a rebuke. And then he says, do you not know that you are the dwelling place of God's glory? You are the temple of God? Do you not know this? He's talking to Christians. I think if Paul were here today, he would look at many of us and say, who in the world do you think you are? Do you not know that you're just the reservoir for the glory of God? And you're acting like this and talking like this and entertaining these thoughts. Think again. And somewhere or another, we call God an egomaniac when we're the ones who are so filled with ourselves and refuse to think again. Now watch this. God, in His arrogance, places His perfection in each and every one of us. Now how arrogant is that? For Him to take His character and His nature and impute righteousness into us. Being in the glory of the Father, what this does is it puts us peace and joy in our lives, but not as a bucket, not for our life, but peace and joy then radiates through us out into the world around us. 
God gives us such an incredible blessing to become and to create peace and joy everywhere we go. All of the New Testament really is an echo of that. Every word seasoned with grace. Lift one another, what? Bear one another. Be peacemakers. Over and over and over we find God telling us to everywhere you go should result in peace and joy. But you can't create what you don't have. If you look at, well, well look at your life. Look at, look, at, look at our life. Grumbling, complaining, self-absorption, thinking about this and that and the other. Very seldom do we ever say, for your glory, Lord. For you, what, do you, what would you have me do for your greater glory, Lord? Think about that. We peacemakers? Are we joy makers? Or are we consumers? Making Christianity about us. Let me tell you, when you make Christianity about us, you're a Christian. When you make Christianity about Him, you're Christian. Big difference. He asks us to give Himself away. In fact, we are the mechanism by which He does that. You will be my witnesses. Witnesses that we saw the crucifixion? No. Witnesses I heard Jesus teach? No. Witnesses of the glory of God. This is the declaration that should be on our tongues. The glory of God. The cross is the perfect illustration of that. Evangelism is not the goal. His glory is the goal. But His glory cannot be clearly experienced without the giving away of the gospel. There was a sense of urgency. You remember when Jesus was actually ascending into heaven and the disciples, who were mesmerized, no doubt, are standing there, this defining moment of the church age, this sending out of the gospel for the very first time. And they're standing there watching their best friend elevating into the heavens. And that was less important than the angels saying, why are you standing here? There are lost people nearby who need to be reminded of the glory of God. Why are you watching this? He's coming back. Don't be standing here when He does. All right. Isaiah 42. In fact, let's go back to Isaiah 41. Because I want to show you something uh, that, that may be, I think, of significant importance. There, there, in, in a lot of translations, uh, I don't want to start picking on some of them, but translations are really, really important. Okay? This isn't the message on how to pick a translation, but they are very, very important. Uh, and a lot of translators have missed a very important word in chapter 41 and chapter 42. In the statements, they just deemed it insignificant, but it is incredibly significant word. Okay, the word in Hebrew is hen, H-E-N, and if you look at verse uh, chapter forty-one, verse twenty-four, it's translated "behold," "pay attention," "look," "perceive." It's a very important word, and without it, we miss what God is trying to tell Israel here. So look at verse uh, 24 of chapter 41. Behold, you are nothing and your work is nothing at all. Whoever chooses you is an abomination. Look at verse 29. 
the Lord says, Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing and their images are empty wind. Now the very next verse gains its impact from the verses that precede it. In Isaiah chapter 42 verse 1, the Lord says, Behold, look, pay attention, my servant who, I'm up, who I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. In chapter 41, verse 24 and 29, the word behold introduces the, thing, the things that cause the Lord to anger. Behold, look at these things. Chapter 42, behold, look at these things that bring me delight. And if you miss those key, it's like, it's like missing the asterisks when you're making a list. So what is it that the Lord delights? The Lord delights in the Lord. Look at chapter 42, verse 1. God is excited about God. God is excited about God. Behold my servant who I'm uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. He's talking about the coming Messiah. God is delighting in God. He is excited, delighting in the Messiah. Why? Why is he excited? The very next sentence in verse 1 gives us the clue. I have put my spirit upon him. God is excited about the Messiah because his spirit is upon him. Now, what's the Spirit going to do through the Messiah? Listen to this. In verse 1, He will bring forth what? Justice to the nations. Look at verse 3. He will faithfully bring forth what? Justice. Look at verse 4. He will not grow faint or be crushed until He has established what? In the earth and the coastlands wait for His teaching. Now, I recognize that when you look at justice, we typically think now... Uh, in causes and social justice and bringing fairness and equity and everything being in balance with one another. And there are many people who claim to be a Christian who focus on a social gospel. Do causes. Prove your faith by accomplishing causes. Sometimes even because of this missing word of understanding what, what justice actually means. Now, the, ju- the word justice in Hebrew is the word mispat. And I think that we can draw the clue to understanding what this word actually means from the parallel verse in verse, uh, word in verse 4, which is teaching. Teaching and justice are parallels here. If you turn to Psalm 119, you will find the word mispat in Hebrew found 30 times in one chapter. In Deuteronomy, the entire book, you will find mispat used 20 times. Every other time that this word is used, it is teaching. The commandments, the law, the statutes of God. So truly, the ordinances, we would, call, we would say the word of God or the truth of God. So let's go back and plug in a proper understanding of what God means when He says justice. Justice is the teaching of the Word of God. Jesus walked by lots of people that He didn't balance out their economy. Jesus didn't heal everybody that He walked by so that some got healed and some wouldn't. Jesus didn't seem to be too engaged in social justice. But He was all about spreading the Word of God. 
the glory of God the Father. So let's take that and let's plug it back into Psalm, or Isaiah 42. He will bring forth the word of God to the nations. He will faithfully bring forth the word of God. He will not grow faint or be crushed until he has established the word of God in the earth and the coastlands. When we say coastlands, we usually think of the beach. But that's not what the Hebrew word means. It means any body that has a coast. Right? Any body of land that ha- actually has a coast. In fact, lots of times where this word is translated uh, from Hebrew, it is inhabitable land. The New Testament would say the uttermost parts of the earth, every nook and cranny where people reside. This truly is a great, com- a great commission passage of Scripture. The Word of God goes forth to everyone who can hear it. And this is what delights the Lord in His messenger, in His servant, the Messiah. When we say yes to Jesus, we say yes to the mission of Jesus. Not just our redemption or the salvation of our soul, but for the life and the purpose that Jesus Christ came to earth for. And we find out that that is for the glory of God the Father. If you can shift from making the gospel about your particular salvation and make, make the gospel about His grander salvation for the nations, it'll begin to change the way you make daily decisions. Isaiah 42 verse 8. I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to idols. And in verse 12, His people are told, Let them give glory to the Lord and declare His praise in the coastlands. That is the gospel. To declare the glory of God. And that it can be known, and that can it be experienced, and that it resides in us as peace and joy. In John chapter 7, verse 17 and 18, it says, My teaching is not mine, but he who sent me, who speaks from himself, seeks his own glory. But he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true. There is no unrighteousness in him. Jesus himself said he came seeking the glory of the one who sent him. It was the gospel according to Jesus Christ. The glory of God the Father. In John chapter 12, verse 28, Jesus prays, Father, glorify your name. He says, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. This is what the Father says in response. Father, glorify your name. I have, and I will. And the I will is through our lives. How do we glorify the Father? Spreading the word. Getting the word out. What is the word? Is the word Jesus? Yes, the word is Jesus. Jesus opens the door to the word, which is the glory of God the Father. That is our testimony. That is our witness that God in God resides joy and peace for our emptiness. That's the gospel. And Jesus proved to us that it's worth dying for. And He opened the opportunity for us to be His righteous, the the righteousness of the Father, so that in us could dwell God's perfection and have a, a hole by which it may pour out of us into the world around us. My only point in saying all of this, and I know it's deep and it's detailed. Some of you may have even already checked out already, but I want to say this. The point of this message is to show you that this is not an inconsistent teaching in Scripture. It is on every page. Every page. 
I think of when Jesus was born. We're about to go into Christmas time. You remember Jesus? There it is. There's Jesus. What is the good news? Jesus is here. No, no, no. That wasn't the good news. Even at Jesus' birth, that wasn't the good news. What was the good news? Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace. Goodwill to men. How do we have it? Right there he is. That's the door to the glory of God the Father. This is the prince of peace. This is the righteousness of God. If you want the Father, you've got to have Jesus. He's the only portal by which you can have Him. But once you have Jesus, that's not the end of the story. Now, you've got to get the word out. If I were the shepherd, if we were the shepherd, we'd be camped out at the stable. That wasn't the point. The stable wasn't the point. The stable was the starting place. The shepherds left that place and began to proclaim the word of God to every inhabitable land. His glory pours through us. And we should be very, very careful about that glory. I think being a Christian, we're defined by our meetings. But being Christian, we're defined by our mission. I want you to think about that. When Jesus returns, I wonder, He's going to say, it's the last thing He said, make disciples. When he says, did you make disciples? And we say, no, but we had a killer church program. No, we didn't make disciples, but we sang a lot of songs about making disciples. We wrote a lot of books about making disciples. We talked about it a lot on Sunday mornings. We talked about making disciples. You look at the book of Acts, which is a great illustration for us. Every chapter has as its primary context getting the message out. From church to church to church. Paul is walking and everywhere Paul establishes a church, the church gives birth to itself. It grows. He establishes a congregation and then he moves on to the next church. That one spreads the word, spreads the word, spreads the word. And before long, the entire Roman Empire, he gets to Agrippa in the end of the 20s and he's talking to Agrippa. Agrippa says, how dare you think I'm going to convert to Christianity so quick? In one conversation, you ain't going to convince me. And that's where we hit... For this man to see the throne of the Father, he's got to get off of his own throne. And I think that's the same thing that we have to fight today. In closing, uh, in James chapter 2, verse 21 and 22, It says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Listen to that. Listen. Abraham was justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. Verse 22. You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. In Genesis chapter 15 verse 6, it says that Abraham believed and it was accounted unto him as... He was, he was made righteous spiritually because of his belief. But James says 20 years later, he proved what he believed by being obedient. 20 years later, he moves from being spiritually righteous to being practically righteous because he put to work 
what he said he believed. He moved from being a something to being something. We've got to move from what we just believe. And we've got to start getting the word out. That is the gospel. To get the glory of the Father out. And it resides in you already. It's the only mechanism. It's the rung on the ladder. And if you're going to store that in yourself, there's going to be a lot of people who can't take that step. This is why Paul said, 1 Corinthians, whether in word or deed or anything you do, may it be for the glory of God. Let your works, you're the light of the world, right? Let your works be that light that men may see and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Let's stand together. Be a river of living water. Don't be a stagnant pond. Be a conduit by which peace and joy flows through you instead of a bucket that people can come and admire. Put your steps where, you, where your belief is. I know this is a heavy message. It's rich. It's, it's deep. But it's pretty simple. And I'm not asking you to... I mean, you don't, you don't, you don't make a decision and become the Apostle Paul. I'm not asking that. But what I am asking is recognize where you are in your character. Recognize what you are expecting in your faith. And take a step and, and, and check your calendar and check your wallet and check your relationships and check your prayer life and check how much time you spend in the Word of God so that you can know the very glory of God. And when you spend time with Him in prayer, Bible study with God's people, you spend time with Him, you'll begin to experience more peace and joy. And Christians, let me admonish you for a moment. When you have an opportunity to be in a Christian huddle, Make sure you're encouraging one another in the Lord and not just making a safe place for people to sit. Let's encourage each other because we need our faith fortified so that when we move out from that huddle, that safe place, peace and joy are flowing through us. Even in the darkest places that we go. Peace and joy are only found in the glory of God. And in His goodness, He places that glory inside of us through Jesus Christ the righteous. That's the gospel. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and we thank you. Do a work and soften our hearts. Help us to think again. In Jesus' name we pray. If you need help finding or taking your next step, send us a message at hello at myconnectchurch.cc.